My view is you try to slow this down to the extent you do through forcing it to be better. I don't think, hey, we're going to slow you down is a strong or winning political position. I do think you need to achieve X before you can release a product is how you slow things down in a way that makes sense. So I think it would be possible to win a political fight that demands a level of interpretability of AI systems that basically renders the major systems null and void right now. Maybe explainability, interpretability is not possible, but it's an example of something where if Congress did say you have to do this, particularly for AI that does X, it would slow things down because, frankly, they don't know how to do it yet. Hi, listeners. Rob Wiblin here, head of research at 80,000 Hours. Over at The New York Times, Ezra Klein has been producing some great content on artificial intelligence this year. So I asked him to come on to share his opinions about a number of high-level strategies for regulating AI that have been getting a lot of play recently, or at least that I've been seeing discussed a lot recently. I think he had some useful takes on what approaches are more or less viable, um, which are likely to be more or less effective, and also uh, what's necessary to make any of those things potentially happen. Oh, and, uh, and also some helpful advice on dealing with sleep deprivation when you're the parent of a young child. A quick announcement first. If you liked episode 149 of the show, Tim LeBon on how altruistic perfectionism is self-defeating, or episode 100, having a successful career with depression, anxiety, and imposter syndrome, then I can really strongly recommend looking at our second podcast feed called 80K After Hours for the new interview that we have out with Hannah Bocher about the mental health challenges that come with trying to have a big impact. People on the team here loved it, uh, and it's it's over on 80K After Hours rather than this feed because it was made for people with a big and serious interest in effective altruism and doing good in particular, uh, which I know is only a fraction of the people listening to the to this show these days. All right, without further ado, I bring you Ezra Klein. Today, I'm speaking with Ezra Klein. To an audience of podcast fans, Ezra probably needs little introduction. He first rose to prominence in the mid-2000s for his individual blogging before being picked up to blog for The American Prospect and then The Washington Post. In 2014, he co-founded Vox.com, where he worked as executive director and hosted the enormously popular podcast The Ezra Klein Show. In 2020, he moved to The New York Times, where he continues to produce The Ezra Klein Show and now also writes regular columns. Thanks for coming back on the show, Ezra. Happy to be here. I hope to talk about what governments and labs ought to be doing differently in light of recent advances in AI capabilities. But for once this time, I'd actually like to start with a question we got from a listener, which reads, what does Ezra make of the tensions between people focused on existing harms caused by AI and people focused on harms that that could occur in the future? It's odd to me because in most areas, people who are focused on different harms that spring from the same thing are naturally political allies because often there will be policy responses that can help address both concerns simultaneously. Uh, What do you think of that one? That's interesting. I'd want to think more if I think that's true, that people who are focused on harms from the same thing are often allies as opposed to – I often find that the deepest political divisions are between the people nearest to each other on the political spectrum. So I would not be surprised if it's a more generalizable problem than you think. But I do think, you know, what you're talking about here, as I understand it, is the the tension between the AI ethics and the AI risk communities. And, and in particular, the, the sort of long-termist community worried about super intelligent AGI and the people worried about, you know, biased AI, disinforming AI, etc. And... I think you do have there things that 
on one level could be natural alliances. But one place where maybe that question is missing some of the argument is that they're not focused on problems from the same thing. In fact, they're arguing about what kind of thing we are facing. And I take the critique of at least many of the AI ethics people as being you long-termists who keep saying we're going to invent super intelligent AGI that can destroy the entire world are in fact, wittingly or not, participants in a ridiculous hype system that is funneling money to this like set of two or three or five companies. And on the one hand, maybe making more likely the thing you fear, but at any rate, distracting people from focusing on the things we should actually fear and vice versa. I think that there is a, a critique um, within the sort of more long-termist community that, yeah, sure, algorithmic bias might be a problem, but it's sure a pretty small problem if you're weighing it up against <laughs> this is going to kill everybody. Right. <laughs> and then there are just, I think, cultural frictions between the the two communities. The way I think AI regulation is going to happen is something is going to go wrong. There is going to be some event that focuses attention again on AI, right? There's been a sort of reduction in attention over the past couple of months. We've not had a major new release in the way we did with GPT-4, say, and sort of people are drifting onto other topics. Then at some point, you know, there will be a new release. Maybe DeepMind's Gemini system is unbelievable or something. And then at some point, there's going to be a system powerful enough or critical enough that goes bad. And I don't think it's going to go bad in you know, foom and then we're all dead. Or if it does, you know, this scenario is not relevant. <laughs> but I think it'll go bad in a more banal way. Somebody's going to die. Um, a critical infrastructure is going to go offline. There's going to be a huge scam that exploits a vulnerability in operating systems all across the internet and tons of people lose their money or they lose their passwords or whatever. Mm. And Congress, which is nervous, is going to like, that'll be the moment that people begin to, to legislate. And once you get into a process where people are trying to work on towards an outcome, not just position within a debate, I suspect you'll find people finding more points of common ground and working together a little bit more. Um, I, I already feel like I see from you know where we were six or eight months ago, people coming a little bit more to earth and a little bit nearer to each other in the debate. Not every sort of loud voice on Twitter, but just in the sort of conversations I'm you know around and 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 in. And I think that I think you'll see something like that eventually. I just don't think we're there yet. Yeah, if if legislation is going to happen here through this kind of crisis model where something goes really obviously wrong and that causes everyone to just agree that there's a problem, at least like there's at least this one problem that, that has to be solved. What does that imply maybe about uh, what people who are worried about these issues should be doing now? I, I guess well, one approach you might take is just to have a whole lot of quite ambitious ideas in your drawer that you're ready to pull out if your predictions about the ways that things could go wrong do actually play out in some way. And then people are going to be very interested to hear what hear what ideas you have for them. Yeah, you need a couple things. You need ideas on the shelf, not in your drawer. <laughs> Don't put them <laughs> in your drawer. <laughs> they need to be on a shelf where other people can reach them to, to shift metaphor a little bit here. Yeah. You need ideas that are out there, right? So this is a, a governing model that in the political science literature is called punctuated equilibrium. Nothing happens and then all of a sudden it does, right? All of a sudden the, the there's a puncture in the equilibrium and new things are possible. And – or as it, it's put more commonly, you never let a crisis go to waste. And when there is a crisis, people have to pick up the ideas that are around. And a couple things are important for that. One is that the ideas have to be around, Two is that they have to be coming from a source people trust, right, or have reason to believe they should trust. And three, they have to have some relationship with that source. 
So what you want to be doing is building relationships with the kinds of people who are going to be, you know, making the decisions. What you want to be doing is building up your own credibility as a source on these issues. And what you want to be doing is actually building up good ideas and battle testing them and getting people to critique them and putting them out in detail, right? I think it is very unlikely that AI regulation is going to come out of a less wrong post. Um, but I have seen a lot of good ideas from less wrong posts ending up in, you know, different white paper proposals that now get floated around. And you need a lot more of those. It's funny because, you know, and I've seen this happen in Congress again and again and again. You might wonder, like, why do these think tanks produce all these white papers, you know, or reports that truly nobody reads and there's a panel that nobody's at? It's a lot of work for nobody to read your thing and nobody to come to your speech. But it's not really nobody. It's it. It may really be that only seven people read that report, but five of them were congressional staffers who had to work on this issue. Mm. And like that's what this whole economy is. It is amazing to me the books that you've never heard of that have ended up hugely influencing national legislation. Right. Most people have not read Jumpstarting America by John Gruber and Simon Johnson. But as I understand it, it was actually a pretty important part of the CHIPS bill. And so you have to build the ideas. You have to make the ideas legible and credible to people. And you have to know the people you're trying to make these ideas legible and credible to. Like that is like the process by which, you know, you become part of this when it happens. Back in March, you were uh, – when you interviewed Kelsey Piper, you, you were um, kind of positive on the idea of just trying to slow down advances in AI capabilities so that society would have more time to notice the problems and, and, and fix them. Do you have any view on what might be the best mechanism by which to slow down the rate at which the frontier advances? My view is you try to slow this down to the extent you do through making forcing it to be better i don't think hey we're going to slow you down is a strong or winning political position i do think you need to achieve x before you can release a product is how you slow things down in a way that makes sense so you know i've used the example and uh, i recognize like this example actually may be so difficult that it's not possible but you could really imagine i think it would be possible to win a political fight that demands a level of interpretability of AI systems that basically renders the major systems null and void right now. Um, you know, if you look at Chuck Schumer's uh, speech that he gave on uh, safe innovation, right, which is his regulatory, his pre-regulatory framework, his like framework for discussion of a regulatory framework, he, you know, one of his major things is explainability. And, you know, he has talked to people. I know I've been around these conversations, um, you know, and people have told him this may not be possible. And he's put that in there, but he still wants it there. Right. Frankly, I want it. I want it, too. So maybe explainability, interpretability is not possible, but it's an example of something where if Congress did say you have to do this, particularly for AI that does X, it would slow things down because, frankly, they don't know how to do it yet. Yeah. And there are a lot of things like that that I think are are less difficult than interpretability. And so I think the way you will end up slowing some of these systems down is not, you know, we need to pause because we think you're going to kill everybody. I don't think that's going to be a winning position. But you need to slow down because we need to be confident that this is going to be a good piece of work when it comes out. I mean, that's something we do constantly. You can't just build – I mean, in this country, you kind of can't build a nuclear power plant at all. But, you know, you, you definitely can't build one – you know, as quickly as you can, cutting all the corners. Yeah. And then there are other things you could do that would slow people down. You know, one of the things that I think should get more, you know, and I've written about this, um, some at least some attention, is a question of where liability sits in these systems. 
So if you think about social media, we basically said there's almost no liability on the social media companies. Um, they've created a platform. The liability rests with the people who put things on the platform. I'm not sure that's how it should work for AI. Uh, you know, when you're – I think most of the question is how the general underlying model is created. And so if OpenAI sells our model to someone and that model is used for something terrible, is that just the buyer's fault or is that OpenAI's fault? I mean, you know, how much power does a buyer even have over the model? And so – but if you put a lot of liability on the core designers of the models – they would have to be pretty damn sure these things worked before they release them, right? And so things like that could slow people down. Yeah. So forcing people to make things up to a higher standard of quality or reliability or interpretability, et cetera, that is a way of of, of slowing down the, the the development process and slowing it down for a reason, which is, you know, to be fair, what I think you should slow it down for. Yeah. You, you've now uh, brought up, yeah, most of the different uh, kind of regulatory philosophies that, that I was going to ask about. So maybe maybe we can go through them one by one. Because on the liability one, it's a really interesting question to me. So if a company trains a model that then is used by someone else down the line to successfully create a bioweapon or successfully harm people in a, in a really big way, who should be legally accountable for that? I think currently our idea with product regulations is that, you know, if you manufacture a weapon and then someone uses it. It's the person who uses it who's responsible, but but you're 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 not on the hook. But maybe the incentives for these firms would be a lot better and a lot more aligned with society if we said no, like if you train and release a technology that is then used to harm people in a massive way, you're respond you've been negligent and you should be held accountable in, in some legal framework for the for the harm that has resulted from kind of your decisions of what to do. What what, what do you think of that? The way a lot of legal regimes work around questions like this is they put a lot of weight on words that are like reasonably or predictable or something like that, right? So if you think about liability in this in this context, even if what you were doing was shifting liability a little bit back onto the, the core model builder, I think the way it would work is not to say that you know anything that happens is their fault, but it would be some language like – Anything that happens that reasonably should have been predictable or prevented or tested for is their fault. Mm. And then you, what you would have functionally is court cases over what is reasonable, right? Which is what you have all the time in different areas of law. And, you know, I wouldn't try to decide that perfectly at the outset. But I think what you would – the way you would think about that as a company if something like that happened is you would say, OK, we need to have done a level of red teaming here that if a court needs to see what we did, it is extremely impressive, Mm. right? It is extremely thorough. And if they see it and it's not impressive, like we could, you know, be on the hook for a lot of money. And so I don't think you can, I think it'd be crazy on some level to create a level of liability that, you know, OpenAI or Google or whomever is liable for anything that is done with their models. But, you know, this is a place where, we actually have a lot of experience in consumer law. I mean, if I pick up my microwave and I hit you with it, my microwave maker is not on the hook for that. If my microwave blows up because they made it poorly, they actually are. And the difference there is like they don't need to, you know, take into account that somebody might pick up the microwave and use it in a totally unintended way to bash somebody else's head in. But it is on them to make sure that, you know, the thing doesn't explode if my four-year-old begins, you know, pounding his hand on all the buttons all at once. 
And so I don't think this is actually as weird as sometimes people suggest. Around consumer products, we have a lot of experience saying that, you know, this has to be pretty well tested to not, you know, create a problem under normal parameters, even of misuse or imprecise use. And it's actually social media, I think, in the internet, they got this huge carve out from liability to slightly reset people's expectations, such that it's like, oh, well, things that are digital, like the core company has almost no relevance to it. But like, that's not how we've done other things. Yeah, it's. I think it's interesting that today, if one of these models was used to create a bioweapon, then I'm not sure it would pass a common sense standard of reasonableness and foreseeability, or at least to get off the hook. That you could say, well, people were shouting about how this was a potential risk. It was all over the media, and you know what have you? you and you know, there's all of these jailbreaks that allows people to get around all of the controls that you have on your model. So maybe you have been negligent here in in, in releasing this this product in this way. I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, there is no doubt in my mind, at least, that if these models currently were good enough to provide real help at building bioweapons, which I don't think they are, they'd be negligent to be releasing them in their current forms. Mm. Right. I mean, that that just I think that is a totally clear thing. They know they cannot protect their models from being jailbroken. So the saving grace here is that the models are not good enough yeah. to actually do that much damage if they're jailbroken. But if they were, then you cannot release a model that can easily be jailbroken. Like that, that, that is what a liability standard like that is trying to get at. It is on you to make sure you can't do this. And if you release something where actually we know, you know, when we do discovery, turns out there are a bunch of emails, you know, inside OpenAI where people are like, look, like, I don't think this is quite ready. Like, we still think there are a lot of ways to jailbreak it. But, you know, the leadership is like, no, we got to get this out. We got to beat Google to market. That's where you get into a lot of trouble. Yeah. So that's kind of ex- creating incentives through the tort law system, perhaps. A different philosophy uh, often is called, you know, independent auditing, uh, evaluations, uh, licensing, and so on. And, and on, on that approach, basically before a product could go to market, before a model could be trained and released, it might have to be sent to a third-party auditor who would, you know, actively try to get the model to do something like spread autonomously to new servers in order to avoid being turned off or, or to help someone produce a bioweapon or, or uh, you know, commit crimes of various other other kinds if, if it's instructed to do that. And if it could be successfully be made to do those things, then it's determined that it's clearly not yet ready for the general public and it would just have to go back for further refinement to fix those problems. Yeah, what, what do you think of, of that broad approach to, to, to regulation? I think the question there is it depends on how good we think the auditors are, where that auditing happens. And yeah, just how much we believe there's a process there that can stay ahead of systems that are getting released, even as we don't understand them, number one. And then as we get systems that have more working memory, and so there are systems that are learning post-release, how are you auditing a system that is changing, in theory, in a dynamic way on the market, right? I learn things every day. Right now, the systems don't really learn things every day, or at least a lot of them don't, right? They're not sort of reabsorbing the data of my conversation with them and using that to get smarter. But if they were, Um, Or if they were doing that in real time rather than kind of in batches, like what would that imply for the auditing? So I think auditing is a good idea. And to a point I was making earlier about building institutions, I think you want to think about building institutions for things like auditing and you want to get a lot of talent into things like auditing. But I've talked to some of the auditors and I personally am very far from convinced that we understand these models well enough to audit them well. And if you believe what is basically lurking in your question – which is, you know, 
huge exponential continued curves in, you know, model capability, then I'm even more skeptical. So I'm not skeptical of the idea in a theoretical way. If we could audit, auditing's great. I am skeptical. I'm a little worried about basically audit washing AI capabilities. Like, oh, this went through audit. So now we know it's fine. Like, do we? Like, how would we know that? Yeah. So that's a little bit of my concern there. And that, that's a place where we probably just need to do a lot more work and research and spend money and get great people into that field and so on. If that's right, though, that we can't tell what these models are capable of doing and they're constantly changing, so it's a moving target, so uh, we're never really going to have solid answers, isn't that completely alarming? <laughs> it's, it seems like that itself should give us massive pause about rolling these things out. I mean, I do think it's quite alarming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I guess what do you want me to tell you? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think the thing, I think that the place where it's very alarming is if you believe in a very, very, very rapid capabilities curve. And, and this is the thing that I'm currently watching to see, right? I want to see if, you know, I don't know when, if, et cetera, GPT-5 is coming or, you know, Gemini is coming or whatever. I, I want to see if the next jump is big. Yeah. I, I'm not totally convinced yet that at least on the large language models, it will be. And so I'm just interested to see that because one thing that I think lurks in the head of the AI risk people is FOOM, right? Is this constant sense that we're going to be on this curve, that it's going to get better so quickly we can't keep up with it. If that's not true, then actually auditing makes a ton of sense. Yeah. If it is true, yeah, then we're in a really, really weird place where probably we don't have a lot of very good policy options. Yes. I think it's just a really open question whether we'll see the rate of progress speed up or or slow down. Both, both seem really live options. Policy and- does not stay ahead of exponential progress curves. Let me yeah. like, just say that as a flat, <laughs> a flat finding from my years doing this work. Policy is a lagging field. Yeah. Yeah. On that point of uh, general lessons that you've learned from following policy debates, I imagine you've probably seen a lot of cases of ideas being turned into legislation and then gradually being converted into agencies, which then you know actually have to take actions that impact people. Have you learned any kind of general lessons about what factors people need to keep in mind at the idea generation stage that, that seem relevant here? Yes, but I'm going to do this in a weird way. Let me ask okay. you a question. Of the different proposals that are floating around Congress right now, which one do you find, which, which have you found most interesting? Hmm. I guess uh, the interpretability stuff does seem pretty promising or re- requiring transparency, I think in part simply because it would incentivize more research into, into how these models are thinking, which, which could, could be useful from a wide range but, of angles. But, but from who? Like whose package are you most interested in or who do you think is like the best on this right now? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not following the, the US stuff at a sufficiently fine-grained level to, to, to know that. So this is the thing I'm, I'm getting at here a little bit. I feel like this is a very weird thing happening to me when I talk to my AI risk friends, which is they, on the one hand, are so terrified of this that they, they truly think, right, that all, all of humanity might die out. And they're very excited to talk to me about it. But when I'm like, what do you think of what Alondra Nelson has done? They're like, who? Well, like she was the person who ran the AI Blueprint Bill of Rights. I mean, she's not in the administration now. Or, you know, did you read Schumer's speech? No, didn't read Schumer's speech. Like, are you looking at what Ted Lieu is doing? Uh, to, who's Ted Lieu? Like, where, where is he? And one answer to your question in terms of how policy gets done is it gets done by policymakers. And I am really struck like really struck and have been now for many months by the distance between the community that understands itself as so worried about this and policymakers. 
that they're not really trying to reach out. They're not really trying to familiarize with them. And so what you actually are having happen, which I don't really think is great, but I think there's actually a weird level of reliance by the policymakers on the people building the AI systems right now. Right. Like who does Biden have to talk to? You know, he talks to Sam Altman. He talks to um, Demis Asabi. He talks to, you know, uh, you know, other people kind of making the systems. And, you know, so one just like very basic thing is that there is a beginning right now of like a like this is a kind of relational and what gets called on the, the hill, like educational phase. So what Schumer really announced was not that he's going to do interpretability or anything else. But he's going to convene a series of functionally forums through which he's going to try to get him and other members educated on AI. And it's like if I was worried about this, you know, around the clock, I would be trying to get my people into these forums. Like I'd be trying to make sure Chuck Schumer's people knew that they should be listening to us and this person in particular. Like we think this is like the best articulator of our concerns. And I would just say that it is unbelievable how human and relational – a process policymaking is. It is crazy how small a number of people they rely on, right? It is just nuts that a key policy will just be because like the person in charge of the subcommittee happened to know this policy analyst going way, 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 way back. And that that's a big part of it. I think that there's a lot more weirdly interest right now in sort of like people want to talk to other people who share their level of concern and I think are not really enjoying the process or not really engaging that much in the process of trying to get beyond that. Right. I know you've been in like a little bit of a spat with Tyler Cowen um, <laughs> about, you know, you're, I, I saw you sort of tweet like, you know, the people who think, you know, who are worried about X risk have won and we don't need to talk to the deniers anymore. And like he says, no, they haven't. And I'll say I'm a little bit more on his side of the, the no, they haven't. But but even putting that aside, the, the question really, which actually a lot of us don't even know the answer to, is what even do the key members of Congress here believe? What are their intuitions, right? Who does need to be convinced? Because a couple members of Congress are going to be the people all the other members of Congress listen to on this. And it's just I, – I just cannot emphasize enough to people who have not covered policy, which for my sense I have for many years. It's really – it's like it ends up being on everything. It's like seven people – end up mattering. And it's really important to identify the seven people and then figure out who they're listening to. Yeah, the, the message I was trying to send with the, those tweets that you're uh, referring to was that my impression was that at least so, so for me as someone who's been worried about this for 10 or 15 years, there's now been such an increase in awareness and concern among, you know, in, in other communities about the possibility that AI could go really wrong, that now I feel there's a sufficient level of interest and concern that it's possible to make a whole lot of progress potentially. And that rather than try to convince everyone, uh, you know, rather than try to go from like, you know, 50% support to 100% support, people should be trying to come up with ideas now, trying to actually f come up with concrete ideas for what people ought to be doing and harnessing the support that is out there. Do you think that is a is a kind of sensible attitude to have that, you know, enough people are troubled and, and on board now that useful work can be done and it doesn't all have to be advocacy in the way that it used to be? I do think a lot of useful work can be done. I think I've seen more things and covered more things where you would have thought the consensus for action had existed for a very long time and yet nothing happened year after year after year after year. And so this feels a bit like that to me right now. When I listen to the policymakers, what I would say in general is there is much more fear of slowing innovation down or getting the wrong regulation in place 
than there is of what happens if innovation moves too fast. And so, you know, if you look at, say, Schumer, and I think the single most important statement here is Schumer's speech because that's a Senate majority leader and he's taken a personal interest in this issue. And he said – and he calls it safe innovation and his point is that the innovation like has to be the thing we protect. And I'm not saying he's wrong on that, but I do think that's an interesting signal, right? He is – more worried, I think, in a lot of ways that you will get the innovation side of this wrong than that you will get the safety side of this wrong. And and maybe that's unfair because, you know, I don't want to I don't want to say I'm seeing into his mind here, but it is always much harder to have anything happen in Congress and not happen. And right now where we are is in the not happening side. And so the fact that there are a lot of news articles and the fact that more extreme opinions on this get a lot of attention I just take that as a much more distant signal from anything happening than I think it might look like. In many cases, that's actually a reason things don't happen. Uh, It would in some ways be likelier you would get stronger legislation if there was a special committee who was working on this already and there wasn't a ton of attention around it. But for whatever reason, there was a process than for it to be like such a huge point of, of contention. Uh, the more polarizing and the more like heated a disagreement or a question gets, oftentimes the harder it is to get anything done on it. So the dynamics here, I think, are less linear from attention to action than one might hope. And that's true on a lot of things like climate change has been like that. I mean, immigration is like that. Like making something a big issue does not signal that it will become a successful issue. Yeah. It's interesting to me that here, living in London, it, it seems like the extinction risk from AI is more prominent in the in the policy conversation than, hmm. than it is in DC, uh, and, I, and I think in the EU as well. I mean, you've got like Sunak taking meetings with people who are worried about extinction. Uh, it's like high on the agenda for the Global Summit on AI safety. Uh, they've appointed someone to lead the Foundation Models Task Force, who's definitely concerned about extinction risks um, among among other things. If that all goes very well in the UK, I wonder whether that would have an influence on the, on the US or the, or the EU or whether whether these are just separate ecosystems, largely. I've been interested in this, what also kind of looks to me like a cultural divergence. And I get the sense that the EU and particularly the UK sees itself as playing the the more regulatory role, right? I think they, even though DeepMind is based in London, it's owned by Google. So functionally, the AI race, to the extent it is a race, is between the US and China. And Europe doesn't see itself as dominating the technology or having the major corporations on this. And as such, they can be more worried about the harms of it. But because the technology is going to be developed in the U.S. and China, what happens there is going to be more meaningful. Yeah. There's another big cluster of proposals, maybe the largest, that is a combination of requiring organizations to seek government licenses if they're going to be training really large or very general AI models. And, you know, in the process of getting a license, they would have, have to demonstrate that they know how to do it responsibly or at least as responsibly as, as anyone does at the time. Um, and those rules could potentially be assisted by legislation saying that only projects with those government licenses would be allowed to access the latest and most powerful AI specialized supercomputers, um, which is sometimes called compute governance. How does that approach that? How, how do you think that would come out of the messy legislative process? I'm interested in that. I don't know. Uh, I could see this going a lot of ways. And that one in particular, I'm – I've really gone back and forth on this because I've talked about it with a lot of people. And that – the reason you're hearing me hesitate is that I think it's actually a very 
So here, here's a, the question, right? On the one hand, yeah, if you take AI, take the metaphor, basically, that what you're developing in AI is a very, very powerful weapon, right? Well, of course, if you're developing a very powerful, very secret weapon, you want that done in a highly regulated facility, or you want that done by a facility that is highly trusted, right? And workers who are highly trusted and everything from their technical capacity to their cybersecurity practices. So that makes a ton of sense. On the other hand... If what you say is you're developing the most important consumer technology of this era, and in order to do that, you're going to need to be a big enough company to get through this huge regulatory gauntlet that is going to be pretty easy for a Google or a Meta or a Microsoft to, to do because like they have all the, the lawyers and you know they, they have the lobbyists and so on. I could imagine as that goes through Congress, people get real antsy about the idea that they're basically creating a sort of almost government protected monopoly, you know, entrenching the position of these this fairly small number of companies and making it harder to decentralize AI if that's something that is is truly possible, right? And and some people believe it is, right? I mean, there's that Google thing about how there, you know, this internal Google document that leaks about how there's no moat. Meta's tried to talk about, you know, open sourcing more of their work, right? Who who knows where it really goes over time? But I think the politics of saying the government is going to centralize AI development in private actors are is pretty tough. You know, there's a different set of versions of this, you know, and I've heard many of the top people in these AI companies say to me, you know, oh, what I really wish is that as we get closer to AGI, that all this gets turned over to some kind of international public body, right? You know, you hear different versions and, and different metaphors, a UN for AI, a CERN for AI, a, you know, you pick the, you know, you pick the the group, an IAEA for for AI. But I don't think it's going to happen because it's, it's first and foremost a consumer technology or is being treated as such. And the idea idea that you're going to nationalize or internationalize a consumer technology that is, you know, creating all these companies and spinning all these companies off is, is very, there's functionally no precedent for that anywhere. So this is a place, and this goes maybe back a little bit to the AI ethics versus AI risk um, issue, where it looks really, really, really reasonable under one kind of you know, dominant internal metaphor, right? You know, we're creating the most dangerous weapon humanity's ever held. And it looks really, really unreasonable if your view is this is a very um, lucrative software development project that, you know, we want lots of people to be able to participate in. And so, yeah, I, I imagine that I think that will have a harder time in a legislative process once it gets out of the community of people who are operating off of this sort of shared you know, this is the most dangerous thing humanity's ever done, sort of internal logic. Yeah. I'm not saying those people are wrong, by the way. That's just, you know, my assessment of the the difficulty here. Yeah, it, it does seem very challenging to get the level of support that you would require, to get the level of coverage to truly be safe if you think that th these are incredibly dangerous weapons. But I, I wonder if, as you were saying earlier, there's some kind of catastrophe. Like, what if someone does use AI technology as a weapon and a million people end up dead? Does that change the game enough that these things that currently seem not really viable might become viable. Yeah. I mean, if a million people end up dead, then yes, it does. If a couple of people at a time, I mean, we'll look at, look at, look at U.S. gun control laws. Yeah. So you think it would just depend on the nature of the... Yeah. I mean, there... And it would depend on the nature of the problem also. I mean, it's not crazy for the solution to be, 
you know, proportionate to the size of the, the problem. If what you have is a critical infrastructure failure, but the outcome of that is that Houston, Texas has no electricity for three days, I mean, that'd be bad, but that would not lead to the nationalization of all AI. You know, that would lead to a set of regulatory safeguards and testing and so on about putting AI, you know, or some kind of system in charge of critical infrastructure or a cybersecurity thing would, you know, have a different set of ideas. I think the thing where there's an AI powerful enough that somebody uses, you know, uses it to somehow get in touch with a wet lab somewhere that doesn't know what it's doing and print a synthetic biology you know, super weapon and we only break up that plot at the last minute or it does kill a bunch of people and then we, you know, whatever it is, then you could get into scenarios like that. Yeah. I mean, so right now it makes sense that the frame that people are thinking about this through usually is the consumer product um, frame. But looking forward, we don't know, I guess we don't know how long it will be, but like 5, 10, 15, 20, 35 years, at some point, these models presumably will be capable of causing a lot of havoc. They will be uh, up, up to that task. And then I want, like, what will the national security establishment think once it just becomes very clear that these could be used for terrorism or they can be used for, for military purposes uh, in a way that's really troubling? Like, at that point, do they, do they jump into action and this, this is now uh, like packs a punch within their framework? Yeah, but does it pack a punch in the sense that they want to regulate it or that they want to have the most of it and control it, right? That, I think, is a danger of how the national security um, system operates around these things, right? On the one hand, yeah, there are international treaties and work governing nuclear weapons. And on the other hand, we sure have a hell of a lot of nuclear weapons because the main you know, lesson a bunch of the countries took is – you know, we need to have the most or we at least need to have deterrence power. So I think that's one reason to, to worry a little bit about, about that sort of metaphor or approach. National security tends to think in terms of dominance over others, not really in terms, I think, of just like generalized risk to the population. And so – Doesn't necessarily yeah, help. <laughs> I, I have a lot of concerns about national security here. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that's true about the competition between countries aspect. But I suppose if you're trying to – limit access to, within a country, then, uh, I mean, the, the national security establishment is uh, familiar with the idea of wanting to limit access to really dangerous biological weapons, for example, uh, for, for people who are inside the United States. I guess what we're kind of dancing around, the, the, a lot of people have suggested, in, including Sam Altman and actually the Secretary General of the, of the UN, they've been pointing towards this idea of doing the International Atomic Energy Agency before AI. And the bargain of the International Atomic uh, Energy Agency is that under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the IAEA inspects uh, nuclear facilities in, in countries and basically, basically all countries to ensure that they're only being used for peaceful purposes. And in exchange, the nuclear superpowers transfer peaceful uh, nuclear applications to other countries to allow them to use it for medical purposes or for energy purposes. I guess that's something that the superpowers wanted because they didn't want proliferation of this. They wanted to maintain their monopoly. And I wonder, yeah, could we imagine a bargain like that in future at the point where it is just very clear to everyone how these could be used as very dangerous weapons in a war? I have a lot of uh, questions about this, to be honest. So let, let me carve out the part that I think we should definitely have it and that, you know, would be very high on my list right now. Because I think you want to begin building these institutions nationally. You need really strong national institutions stocked. I mean, they should have high pay scales given you know how much money you can make in AI right now. You need really strong national institutions with people who understand this technology really well and can be in an advisory, a regulatory, an auditing, et cetera, capacity. 
right? Maybe even are creating, you know, autonomous public capacities, right? You know, just like AI models for the, you know, public good oriented towards things the public wants that don't have a business model. But whatever it is, right? I think it's actually really important to begin standing up and probably on its own just places in the government where it's like you just have 300 excellent AI experts, you know, from different domains. So that's one thing. The question of the international IAEA model is just really tough because I'm not saying I oppose it or I just – I when I try to think about how it would work, on the one hand, a lot of what makes it possible to do that is that uranium is kind of hard to get and hard to enrich. Right. And also that system has only been so effective. I mean look at Israel, look at Iran, look at North Korea, look at Pakistan – so that's a little tricky. Also, again, the reason you could do it is that nuclear weapons were from the beginning nuclear weapons. I mean, we dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. We dropped it on Nagasaki. And that's why you have something like that, because from the beginning, what people saw here was the unbelievable destructive power of these weapons. Right now, most people, you know, whatever the stories are that pop around the media, just like don't think these are that destructive. So I think that, you know, one of the most worrying things in this whole area is that it doesn't look that bad till it's too late, till you have something that's actually genuinely destructive. But I don't think you're going to have a powerful, preventive regulatory structure that is going to keep other countries from having their own autonomous, like really profound AI models. And like what? I mean, if Brazil wants to create an AI, like a really good AI, and wants to put it under, you know, give it some national defense authority, are we going to bomb Brazil? Like what, what is what is the implied threat that is being offered here? Because in, in some cases, like we would go to war, right? I mean, we went to war to stop Iraq from getting nuclear weapons that it wasn't even trying to get. So, you know, there are cases where we would actually – you know, take that as a reason to go to war. Um, in the nuclear weapons case, are we really going to go to war with other countries on AI or maybe it's just sanctions? It's just, and then the more central AI becomes to economies, to um, kind of everything, the more countries are going to want ones that they control, which is completely natural. It's just a hard equilibrium for me to imagine working, which doesn't mean it won't. And again, specifically in a case where you have, you know, these kind of super AGI models and there's a disaster, you know, you can imagine very different worlds coming out of, you know, very, very big disasters. But in this case, it just, it's just, yeah, it's just very hard for me to picture. Yeah. Another broad approach that's out there is sometimes branded as a Manhattan project for AI safety, basically the US and UK, and I guess the EU governments spending billions of dollars on research and development to solve the technical problems that exist around keeping AGI aligned with our goals and having sufficiently strong guardrails that they can't easily be retrained to commit all sorts of crimes, for example. Um, the CEO of Microsoft, Satya Nadella, has, has talked in favor of this. And uh, yeah, the economist Samuel Hammond wrote uh, an article in Politico that, that we'll link to. But yeah, what, what, what do you think of that broad approach? Yeah, that I'm, I'm very much for. Um, I don't think I would choose a metaphor of a Manhattan project for AI safety just, just because I don't think people believe we need that and that's not going to be much of a political winner. But AI is a great thing to spend lots of R&D money on and have a really strong public research infrastructure around. And a good amount of that research should be on safety and interpretability. 
and you know we should really want this to work and it should happen and yeah i mean i think that makes a ton of sense and i think that's actually a possible thing you could achieve look i don't trust any any view i hold about takeoff rates but what i do think is that if we are in like a sort of vertical takeoff scenario policy is just going to lag so far behind that we almost have nothing we can do but hope for the best if we're in more modest takeoff scenarios which i think are more likely in general well then building institutions can really work and uh, you know we can be making progress alongside the the increase in capability and capacity and danger and so that's where i think coming up with ideas that also just play into the fact that Different countries want to dominate this. Different countries want to get the most that they can out of this. Different countries want to make sure a lot of this is done for the public good. And that it's actually not that expensive. I mean, it is expensive for most companies, which is why, you know, OpenAI has to be attached to Microsoft and DeepMind had to be part of Google and so on. But, you know, from the perspective of a country's budget, it's not impossible to to have real traction on this. Yeah. Now getting the expertise and, you know, knowing how to, you know, getting the right engineers and so on, that's tougher, but, but, but it's doable. And so, yeah, I think that's somewhere where there's, you know, a, a lot of promise. And the good thing about building institutions like that, even if they're not focused on exactly what you want them to be, is it then when they do need to refocus, if they do need to refocus, you have somewhere to do that, right? You, you know, you have something that can become, you know, if you have a Manhattan project just for AI, well, then you could have a Manhattan project for AI safety because it was already happening then. You just have to expand it. So that's where I think beginning to see yourself as in a foundation building phase is useful. I mean, it's again, it's why I emphasize that at this point, you know, it's good to think about your policies, but also think about the frameworks under which policy will be made. You know, who are the members of Congress who understand this really well? And, you know, you're hoping will be a leader on this and you want to have like good relationships with then, you know, keeping their staff informed and so on. And what are the institutions where all this work is going to be done and do they need to be built from scratch and what kind of people go into them and how do you get the best people into them? And all of that is not like the policy at the end of the rainbow, but you need all that for that policy to ever happen and to ever work if it does happen. Hmm. I guess the the dream here would be I, I think at the moment the ratio of research that enhances capabilities um, in AI versus trying to steer them and, and align them is something like a hundred to one, and maybe it would be great if we could get that to ten to one or, or, or something like that. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, Do you, what sort of design details uh, might affect whether you know the Manhattan Project for AI safety or whatever we end up branding it, whether that actually ends up helping or I mean you could imagine a failure scenario where almost all of it ends up being co-opted for capabilities research anyway because that's to many people more appealing and it's certainly more more profitable. Yeah, would you have any advice on on how people can kind of guide a, a broad project like that towards funding the kinds of things that they think is most valuable? I mean that's pretty I think straightforward, which is that you know in the appropriation the goals of the research are written into it. I mean, that happens all the time. Um, you know, when you think about how money is apportioned for, you know, ARPA-E or different, you know, programs at the Department of Energy or at the NIH, you know, when Joe Biden has his, you know, cancer moonshot from a few years back, it isn't, you know, any kind of new or unsolved political problem. How do you tell an agency what this appropriation is actually for? So that's about getting congressional support to do the thing you want it to do as opposed to do the thing you don't want it to do. And again, that goes back to 
relationships. And uh, again, one thing I am trying to emphasize in this conversation a little bit is that there is just a lot of boring work here that I don't exactly see happening, right? That it's a lot of, you know, making sure that the people who eventually are going to write this bill are listening to you when they write it. Yeah. I mean, the sheer number of people who have experience on this or are working on this is, is really very small, I think, relative to the size of the problem and certainly maybe relative to the appetite for assistance that exists now. Do you have any advice on how do you scale up a community that's interested in a policy problem when maybe it needs to be 10 or 100 times bigger than it is? I don't think it's that small, actually. Huh. And, you know, again, part of this is my experience of, you know, I lived in D.C. for 14 years. I cover politics. Uh, You cannot imagine how small the organizations that dramatically affect what happens in Washington, D.C. are. I mean, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities is just one of, over a long period of time, the most effective, consequential nonprofits like anywhere. The amount of good they have done on the social safety net is incredible. And there's not 20,000 people working at CBPP. I'd be surprised if there were more than 100. I mean, there might be more than 100. I don't actually know their staffing. But um, but it's not going to be more than 500. I mean, it's not going to be more than 200. And so I don't think this is that small. Um, I don't think the people are located in the right place. Uh, I don't think they've been trying to build a bunch of, you know, DC institutions. I noticed this on crypto a few years ago, and I apologize because I'm going to forget the name of the institution that I'm thinking of here. But uh, Jerry Brito, uh, who, you know, is in DC trying to do crypto regulatory work. And, you know, it was like he had like a it's like a little crypto outfit, little crypto, you know, regulatory nonprofit trying to create crypto favorable laws. And I think it had like six people in it, a dozen people in it. And then when there was this big fight over crypto in Congress, all of a sudden this group was important and they were getting calls because they'd been there like working on building relationships. And, you know, when somebody needed to call somebody, they were actually there. And, you know, so it is not by any means beyond the capabilities of these you know, this community, these these companies, these organizations, these nonprofits to be setting up shops, fairly well-funded shops in Washington, D.C. that where, you know, the point is that they're turning out good research and trying to meet people. Yeah, it, this could, does get a little bit to like, how scared are you, right? If you're so scared that like you want to devote your life to this, but like not if you have to live in Washington, D.C., <laughs> you're not that <laughs> afraid. Um, a lot of people want to be out in San Francisco where the action is, but the, the regulatory action is going to be in D.C. Mm. Well, yeah, I guess on the question of where to locate, when you were talking about the takeoff speeds, it, it kind of occurred to me that you know, in a slow or medium kind of takeoff scenario, then the DC policy seems really quite important. In a, in a fast takeoff scenario, what the policy and governance that seems to matter is the policy and governance inside the AI lab. I mean, it's, it, it's an extremely bad situation to be in in the first place if things are taking off really quickly. But then the organization that can potentially react and do something useful is you know, open AI itself, perhaps. And you know, who's making the decisions there uh, and, and, on, and on what basis and uh, you know, what sort of information do they have to rely on? That stuff seems like it might be able to help in that case. I find the number of AI risk people who seem to me to be working inside AI shops, building the AIs they are terrified of, caught in a competitive dynamic, they are perfectly happy to admit to me that they cannot stop, to just be a little bit of a puzzling sociological outcome here. And I think it's because working on AI is really cool and fun. I don't think it's specifically because like they're motivated by profit, but they do want to work on AI, where you know, spending your time in D.C. working on AI regulation is like kind of a pain in the ass. But I, I, 
I don't know. I think there's something a little bit weird about this. Like, again, as somebody who's been, you know, as you know, like very friendly to this community and is probably among, I don't know, national political columnists probably in touch with more AI risk people than than just about anybody else. I find the number of them who seem to me to be accelerating the development of AGI to be a little weird compared to the number who seem to have set up shop in Washington to try to convince Washington to not let AGI happen. It doesn't look to me like it's working out the way they wanted it to, but I don't see people, you know, radically, you know, all leaving the companies and then setting up the shops. There's just something here that makes me wonder what's actually going on in people's motivation systems. We have an article on exactly this question of whether it's good or bad to take roles at AI labs that, that we'll stick up the link to in the in the show notes. I think one thing that is driving that phenomenon is that until recently, I think people were just extremely pessimistic about whether government would be able to have a useful role here. They thought, like I think most people thought that uh, there was just not going to be significant interest from uh, mainstream politics. And to me, that seems like it was a massive blunder. And that I think thinking through more concretely how this would play out would have revealed that there was going to be a big policy opportunity here. There was potentially going to be a big role for government to make things better or or worse. So that, that yeah, that's maybe something that I, that, that I wish had gone differently. One thing I will say is that, you know, I don't want to suggest that there's absolutely nobody doing this work. So there's a really good group at Georgetown, CSET, the Center for Security and Emerging Technology, that they've been doing this work. And it's really notable, I think, that when Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, wanted to give a speech announcing his big, you know, safe innovation framework, he went to them. Like, they're not a huge deal. They don't have 6,000 people. They're not the Brookings Institution. But there they were. And that's where Chuck Schumer gave his speech. And he's clearly in touch with them and, like, thinking about things they say. So there are some people doing this. And, you know, also I know that they were funded by, by people in the A community. So I, I would just say that there is payoff to that. Hey, everyone. Uh, I just wanted to note that when we were looking up a link for this one, we realized that Schumer had actually given this talk not at CSET, but the very similarly named CSIS, uh, which is it's just a different think tank in DC, one that's uh, more focused on international relations. CSIS is a bit bigger and older than CSET, uh, but we kept this question and answer in because we thought you should get the chance to hear Ezra's broader point here, which, which may well stand, uh, even if this isn't a perfect example of the phenomenon that he's uh, trying to describe. Okay, back to the interview. And, and my point is not that nobody should be working on AI in the AI organizations, but that a little bit like what you were saying about the quantity of resources going into capabilities development versus safety research, I think it is weird among people who say they're worried about AI risk, the quantity of resources going into developing AI versus developing you know, policy shops that have the relationships and so on. And again, I'm maybe just like a little more cynical than you on this. I think the reason is that people who are really into AI like to be around other people who are really into AI and like to actually work on AI and have like totally wild conversations about AI and worry <laughs> about these things together. And like it's like – I mean I'm I'm connected to that community in San Francisco. Like it's actually – it's like being at the center of things. It's wonderful. I mean it's exciting. You know, you're part of the the the, the bleeding edge and – being in D.C., being a person who worries about AI in D.C. is being in exile from that. And so I don't think it's just that nobody I, – I, I'm a little more skeptical than you are that this was just that nobody could have predicted that when AI systems got powerful, there would be a regulatory – a level of regulatory interest. Like, I don't know. I could have told you that would happen. <laughs> but I think that you know people wanted to be where the, the action was. But, but now the action is in a way moving. It may be another way of just putting this, which is a little less provocative, is the action is moving, Right. 
now the AI shops, you know, they still have a certain amount of optionality in terms of what they're doing, but not as much as they did a couple of years ago, right? A lot more of their decisions are now being driven by their parent companies or their major investors. And I think that's clear, right? So even if Sam Altman wanted to say like, hey, we open AI, we're just not going to, we think this has gone too far. I don't think Sam Altman would keep his role that long in that world. So the space of movement where you can, you know, shape what is happening has shifted. So maybe you could have really shaped it there a couple of years ago, but now you can really shape it in Washington or in Brussels or in some state capitals or, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, have people actually adapted to that world? Uh, Like are, are people making the investments in terms of their time and energy and money and institution building that, fit where we are now as opposed to where we were, you know, four or five years ago. Hmm. Yeah, maybe maybe it's hard for me to fully buy into that explanation just because just personally, I find AI so boring. <laughs> I feel like I've been dragged, kicking and screaming into having to think about AI from a technical point of view, just because I think it's so incredibly important. But uh, yeah, I, I, have you ever tried to sit down and read an AI safety paper? I guess because I'm not a technical person, it just, um, it doesn't, it doesn't get me that excited. I don't really believe you. Oh, you really don't believe me. <laughs> wow. Listen, I've read, I, I've read, I've read. A, you know, how do you, you know, catch a chinchilla and all that? Some of the papers are boring. Um, I think this stuff is interesting. It's, it's gotten more interesting. It's gotten more, gotten more interesting recently. Maybe got to go back to like the 2017 stuff. Yeah, I have heard a lot of your podcasts on AI, and I think I'm pretty good at telling as a professional here when a podcast host is not into the thing they're talking about. And even if you don't wish you were talking about this, I think you're pretty into it. Well, I'm interested in a lot of different topics. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess I'll just have to accept that uh, you're not convinced on this one. There's a strikingly large number of different mechanisms by which AI could end up causing harm, which various different people have pointed to. And one can, of course, try clustering them into groups that have something in common, like misalignment, misuse, algorithmic bias, the kind of natural selection perspective, and so on. Um, I know from listening to the extensive coverage of AI on your show over the last year that you're personally engaged with a wide range of these possibilities and take many of them pretty seriously. What possible ways that advances in AI could go wrong are you likely to prioritize in your coverage of the issue over the next year or two? I don't know that I'm going to prioritize any one over a set of others. I find the whole question here to be almost unbearably speculative, right? That we're operating in a space of pretty radical uncertainty. And so a number of the most plausible and grounded ways AI could go wrong are also in certain ways at least spectacular, right? AI will be bad in the ways our current society is bad because it is trained in the data of our current society. That is both a, a clear harm that is going to happen and is not civilization ending. And then as you get up the ladder to civilization ending harms or civilization threatening harms, you you are working with obviously more speculative questions of how AI will develop, how it will be used, etc. And so one of the things that that I'm interested in is not so much trying to tell policymakers or my audience, you know, you should think about this harm and not that harm, but that we need a structure. We need systems. We need expertise and institutions and expertise in the correct institutions to have visibility on how artificial intelligence is developing. We need to be thoughtful about the business models and structures around which it is being built. Uh, So there's something I keep emphasizing that I think other people really underemphasize. The kinds of artificial intelligence we have are going to be highly governed by the kinds of artificial intelligence that get uh, 
quick market share and that seem to be profitable. So already I think it is a kind of harm that is emergent that more scientifically oriented systems like AlphaFold are getting a lot less attention than just an endless series of chatbots because the chatbots have such a clear path to huge profitability. And so systems that I think could be better for humanity are much less interesting to the venture and, and financier class than systems that could be plugging into search engines right now. And so being thoughtful about what the the monitoring systems are, what the business models are, you know, how we're doing audits, in many ways, I think we're in a, a period more of institution building and information gathering than saying, like, this is what's going to go wrong and here's how we're going to prevent it. Yeah, you, you, you've made this point about business models uh, quite a few times, and I think it's a good one and, and, and it's not one that, that, that comes up a whole lot elsewhere. Do you have a view on what sort of business model would be the, the, the best one to, to take off if, if, we could, if we could affect what sort of business model AI companies uh, are using? Yeah, I, I think I do um, on a couple of levels. One is I just think the competitive race dynamics between the different companies are, are worth worrying about. There is a – I basically understand the incentive structure of AI development right now as being governed by two separate races, one between different companies, right? You have Microsoft versus Google versus Meta, somewhat versus Anthropic, you know, and then you have some other players. And then between countries, you know, the US versus China. You can maybe say, given that DeepMind is in London, the West versus you know China, something like that. And then, of course, as time goes on, you're going to have more systems coming out of more countries. And so the problem, and this is a very banal point that many other people have made, is that there is going to be more direct pressure to stay ahead in the race than there is to really do anything else. You can have all these worries and all these concerns, but it's really a trump card to say, you know, or, or it certainly acts in our system like a trump card to say, well, if you don't do this or if you slow down and do that, they're going to get ahead of you over there. And so that to me is one set of problems I think we should worry about around business models, for instance, right? If there's a very near-term path to massive profitability, then people are going to take that path and they're going to cut a lot of corners to get there. And I think when people think of business models, they're primarily then thinking of, you know, things like hooking it into advertising. And I am too. But also just think about, you know, algorithmic trading funds that have, you know, billions of dollars to throw at this and that might want to create but not really understand what they're creating in terms of some kind of artificial system that is inhaling data from the markets that is hooked up to a fair number of tools and that is turned loose to try to make as much money as it can in an automated way. Who knows what a misaligned system like that can end up doing? So how you make money, that I think is important. And in general, one reason I focus on it, I should say, is that I think it's something that the people who focus on AI risk somehow have a bit of a blind spot here. I think there's a little bit of a, a weird forgotten middle between what I think of as like the AI ethics concerns, which are you know around algorithmic bias and misinformation and things like that, and what I think of as the AI risk concerns, which are more sort of existential. And I think that the sort of more banal like how is everybody going to make money on this and what is that race going to do to the underlying technology has been a little neglected. Yeah, I wonder if one reason it might be neglected is that people aren't sure, you know, even if we would prefer the scientific uh, AI models to flourish uh, more than others say and to be more profitable, people might wonder how, like what policy options are there to really influence which of these business models end up ends up being uh, most successful. Did you have any ideas there for, for how one could push things in one direction rather than another? 
I think to be given where I am and where I'm talking, I think one reason it's neglected is that in general, one blind spot of effective altruism is around capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) And there, for a lot of reasons, is just like not that much interest or comfort with critiquing incentives of business models and systems and wealthy people within effective altruism. So I just want to note that to not uh, let let you and your audience off the hook here. I think that <laughs> I don't think it's totally accidental that this has happened. I think I think many people have said more or less it looks like capitalism is going to plausibly destroy the world basically because of this race dynamic that you described. That's a that, that's a very common line. Um, so I think people people at least open to, to noticing some ways in which the incentives are, are poorly aligned. Yeah, I think all of a sudden people now they see the race dynamic are. But I just think in general, this is a, a slightly neglected space in, in the A world. Anyway, the point yeah. is not to make this into a critique of, <laughs> into a critique of EA. Look, I think this is hard. You know, do I have a plausible policy objective in my pocket? Not really. Um, if it were me at the moment and I were king, I would be more restrictive on business models rather than less, right? Like I would probably close off a lot of things. Like I would say you can't make any money using AI to do consumer manipulation, Um, I think the possible harm of having systems that are built to be relational, uh, so think of things like what Replica is doing or um, I'm very impressed by Poe, what inflection.ai is built. I think it's a pretty interesting – is it called Poe? I might have the name of it wrong. P.I.? Are you thinking of the personal AI? Pi. Maybe it's Pi. But the Reed Hoffman-oriented aligned company. Um, I think that's a very impressive model. It's very, very personal. It's really nice to talk to. I think if you imagine models like that that build a long-term personal relationship with people and you know understand things about the the people they're talking to and then use that to manipulate what they do, I think that's pretty scary. So I would do things like that, but on the other hand, I would be putting a lot more public money and public uh, resources into AI. I mean, something that I've talked about at different times on the show and talked about with other people is I would like to see more of a vision. For AI for the public good, like what do we want out of AI? Not just how do we get to it as fast as we possibly can, but what do we want out of it? Like what what would it mean to have some of this actually designed for public benefit and oriented towards the public's problems? So it might be that the public, you know, quote unquote, is much more worried about a set of scientific and medical problems uh, as opposed to, you know, how to build chatbots or, you know, help kids with tutoring or something. But because the others have more obvious business models who get the the latter, not really the former. And so I, I think that the, some of this is just you would have to actually have a theory of doing technology for the public good as opposed to just having a regulatory opinion on technology to the extent you have any opinion at all on it. Um, and we tend to be more comfortable, at least in America, with the latter and so some of what some of the reasons hard to come up with some of the things I would like to talk about is that they they feel very distant from our instincts about and our sort of muscle memory about how to approach technology. Yeah, I guess one change in incentives you could try to make is it's like ne- so very narrow systems that are just extremely good at doing one thing, like uh, a model that is extremely good at folding proteins. They don't tend to generate nearly so much concern because they're not likely to be able to act that autonomously because because just their abilities are so are so narrow. And it seems like to do an awful lot of good, we don't need necessarily general AIs that are capable of doing you know most of the things that humans are able to do. We probably can do an awful lot of good just by training these these narrow systems. And those ones are just a lot less troubling from many different points of view. This is my gut view. And in addition to that, there's always the prospect out there of achieving 
generalized artificial intelligence. And if you can get to AGI, then you get to sort of pull out of your argumentative pocket. Well, once we hit that moment, then what that self-improving generalizable intelligence can do, you know, will so outpace all the narrow systems that it'll be ridiculous that we wasted all this time doing these other things, so blah, 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 blah. But if you're skeptical, and I do have still a fair amount of skepticism that we're going to hit AGI or the kinds of super capable AGIs that, that, that people believe in anytime soon, then actually you would want uh, a lot more narrow systems. And one reason you'd want them is you might believe, as I believe, that the chatbot dynamics don't actually orient themselves to, to things that are that good for society. So technology always comes with a point of view. Technology always comes with things that it is better at and worse at. And something I have said on, on my show before and, and talked about in conversation with Gary Marcus, who's, who's more of a critic of these systems, but, but this is a point I agree with, is that I think you're basically in chatbots creating systems that are ideally positioned to bullshit. And I mean here bullshit in the, the Harry Frankfurt version of the term, right, where, where bullshitting is speaking without regard to the truth, not specifically lying, just not really caring if it's true or not, not even really knowing if it's true or not, right? That's in some ways the, the whole point of hallucination or the whole point of when I go to an AI system and I say to it, hey, can you write me a college essay, a college application essay uh, that is about how I was in a car accident as a child. And it wrote me an amazing essay when I did that and it talked about how I got into martial arts and, you know, learned to trust my body again and how I worked at a hospital with other survivors of car crashes. Just none of it had happened, right? It just made up this whole backstory for me off of like a one sentence prompt. And so when you have a system like that, what you have is a system that is well oriented towards people doing work without much regard for the truth. And uh, I think there's actually a lot of reason to think that that could be a net negative on society. And you don't even have to be thinking about high levels of disinformation or deepfakes there. Just a gigantic expansion in the amount of garbage content that clogs up the human processing system and the sort of collective intelligence of humanity, like that too would just be sludge. That would just be a problem if everything got way more distracting mm. and uh, um, way harder to, to work with and way harder to separate signal from noise. Like that, that would just be bad. Meanwhile, a lot of these narrow systems, I think there's incredible work you can do, right? And if the amount of money and investment and excitement that's going into the chatbot race was going into trying to figure out lots more predictive systems for finding relationships between real things that human beings don't have the cognitive capacity to master. Uh, I think that would be great. And so to me, that's where, you know, again, business models matter, but but also, you know, that's somewhat on the public and on the government. You don't just want the government to say this business model is bad. You wanted to say that one is good sometimes, or you wanted to make that one viable. I mean, the whole idea of something like carbon pricing or separately what we actually did in the Inflation Reduction Act, where you put huge amounts of subsidies into decarbon to decarbonization, is you are tilting towards a business model. You're saying, if you do this, we are going to make it more profitable for you to do it. You can imagine prizes with AI, right, where we set out this set of you know drug discoveries we would like to make or scientific problems we would like to solve. And if you can build an AI that will solve them, right, like the protein folding problem, we will give you a billion dollars. It's a problem to me that DeepMind made no money from AlphaFold. Or, I mean, I'm sure they did in some kind of indirect way. And maybe, and, you know, obviously they're trying to spin it out into isomorphic, which will do drug discovery. But AlphaFold's great, right? They solve the protein folding problem. Nobody, to my knowledge, cut them a check for doing so. And, like, 
there should be something that is cutting <laughs> checks yeah. if you can invent an AI to solve fundamental scientific problems, not just cutting checks. If you can invent an AI that sell, that is better at selling me hydro flask water bottles as I travel around the internet, like that's just a, a, a problem. Yeah. Um, I, I know you've, you've, uh, you've got a sick kid and, you, and, and you've got to go, but I guess, uh, yeah, a final question for you is I, I recently got, got married and I'm hoping to start a family in the next few years. And I guess you've been a dad for, for a couple of years now. What's one or two pieces of advice you, you've got for me if things work out? Ooh, uh, oh, what a fun question. Um, could do a whole, could do a whole 80,000 hours on parenting. Not that I'm an expert on it. <laughs> um, I think one is that, and this is like a very like long running piece of advice, but, um, Kids see what you do. They don't listen to what you say. And, you know, for a long time, they don't have language. And so what you are modeling is always a thing that they are really absorbing. And that includes, by the way, their relationship to you and your relationship to them. And something that really affected my parenting is I believe it's a clip of Toni Morrison, if I'm not wrong, talking about how she realized at a certain point that when she saw her kids that, you know, she knew she, how much she loved them. But what they heard from her sometimes was the stuff she was trying to fix, right? Your shoes are untied, you know, your, you know, your hair is all messed up, you're dirty, like you need to whatever. And that she, she had this conscious moment of trying to make sure that the first thing they saw from her was how she felt about them. And so I, I actually think that's a really profound thing as a parent, the, this idea that, um, you know, I always want my kids to feel like I'm happy to see them, right? That's like to, the, the, they feel that they are like seen and wanted to be seen. So that's something that I think about a lot. And then another thing is you actually have to take care of yourself as a parent. Hmm. And one thing you're about to learn and you're getting, you know, I worry I'm like a little more grumpy on this show today than I normally am because my kid had croup all night and I'm just tired. And the thing that I've learned as a parent is that just 75% of how I deal with the world, like how good of a version of me the world gets is how much sleep I got. And you got to take care of yourself. And that's not always the culture of parenting, particularly modern parenting. You need people around you. You need to let off your own steam. You need to, you need to still be a person. But, you know, a huge part of parenting is not how you parent the kid, but how you parent yourself. And I'm just like a pretty crappy parent when I do a worse job of that and a pretty good parent when I do a good job of that. But a lot of like how present I can be with my child is am I sleeping enough? Am I meditating enough? Am I eating well? You know, am I taking care of my stress level? So, you know, it's not 100% of parenting a child is parenting yourself, but I think about 50% of parenting a child is parenting yourself. And uh, um, that's a that's an easy thing to forget. Yeah. It is astonishing how much more irritable I get when I'm underslept. Uh, that's, that's, that's maybe my greatest fear. <laughs> yeah, it, it's bad. Like it's, I really, I mean, yeah, again, like even in this conversation, I've been like, I'm, I'm a little, like a little <laughs> probably like edgier than I normally am. And I've just felt terrible all day. And there's just, it's a crazy thing when you become a parent and you realize other parents have been doing this all the time. Mm. Like, and you see them, it's cold and flu season and you understand that you didn't understand what they were telling you before and somehow all these people are just running around doing the same jobs they always have to do and carrying the same amount of responsibility at work and so on just operating at 50 percent of their capacity all the time and not really complaining about it that much and it's it's a whole new world of um admiring others uh, uh opens up to you it's like i have two kids and now like my admiration of people who have three or four 
is so high. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a real thing. But it does open you up to a lot of beautiful vistas of, of human experience. And as somebody who, you know, is interested in the world, it was really undersold to me how interesting kids are. Um, and being how interesting being a parent is. And it's worth paying attention to, not just because you're supposed to, but because you learn a, just a tremendous amount about what it means to be a human being. My guest today has been Ezra Klein. Thanks so much for coming back on the podcast, Ezra. Thank you. I worry that I uh, might have offended some technical AI safety people a minute ago by saying that I found their work hard to get into. Uh, I think uh, it's possible I even used the word boring. The, uh, the trouble, and I, I partly want to say this here because I expect I'm not the only one who has privately experienced this, is that I don't feel like I've had enough of a gears level understanding of how machine learning works to judge which ideas in the field are good or bad, uh, at least not so long as some fraction of serious domain experts say that they're into a strategy and, uh, and, and back it. Um, and in practice, that makes it a bit unrewarding to dig into proposals because I know that at the end, from experience, I'm just going to have to walk away uh, shrugging my shoulders more or less. That was more so the case five years ago uh, when there weren't really products available to make how AI works concrete in my mind. And it was even more so 10 or 15 years ago when nobody had a clear picture of what uh, general AI systems might ultimately end up looking like. This is one reason why we've been doing more episodes on AI policy issues, uh, where I think I do have some non-zero ability to, to, pick, pick, to pick winners and losers out of the ideas that are out there. All of this is changing, though, uh, now that I guess the rubber has hit the road and it's becoming clearer what we're dealing with and maybe what, what actually has to be done. Yesterday, I spoke with Jan Leiker, who leads OpenAI's alignment work. And I think I basically understood everything that he was saying. Uh, and I reckon I could perhaps even visualize how he hopes it's all going to work and, and, and explain it to, to someone else. But anyway, if, like me, you didn't study computer science uh, and you felt at sea reading about technical AI progress in the past, uh, know that I, I sympathize with you. And indeed, I have been secretly sympathizing with you since about 2009. And if you're a technical alignment researcher, know that I've been really appreciating your work from the bottom of my heart, even if my head has been finding it hard to fully understand. Finally, before we go, a reminder about the excellent new interview we've done, which is available on ADK After Hours, uh, Hannah Bocher on the mental health challenges that come with trying to have a big impact. And if you're enjoying these AI-focused episodes that we've been producing recently, then you might like the compilation uh, that I put together of 11 excellent episodes of the show looking at all different angles of, of AI. Uh, that compilation is titled uh, The, the 80,000 Hours Podcast on Artificial Intelligence, and you can search for that and listen to the feed anywhere that you're listening to this or find it in the top menu on 80,000hours.org. All right. The 80,000 Hours Podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. The audio engineering team is led by Ben Cordell, with mastering and technical editing for this episode by Milo Maguire. Full transcripts and extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.